Back in September of 2022, we were hearing from the Lord through 1 Samuel 16. That was when David uh, was a young man. He was about 15 years old. He was anointed the king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. Uh, a year later, September 2023, our church family gets to the high point of David's life. Second uh, Samuel chapter 10. David is about 50 years old. And he has just had one of many military victories. David has not only experienced many military victories during this time, but he has experienced personal victories. He has been full of joy. He has been very close to God. He is described as a man after God's own heart. Now, he did not live a really comfortable life during this time. There was actually a lot of trauma. I, I don't know, would you consider when the most powerful man in the nation, King Saul, is trying to kill you? Would you consider that trauma? <laughs> Say yes. As trauma. As trauma. Would you consider when you look like perhaps the least likely warrior um, that, that would go up against this, this great giant of a man to settle the battle, Goliath. Uh, he had all kinds of traumatic situations in his life. But nonetheless, he was very close to God. He was full of joy. And perhaps one of the most visible representations of that joy is him dancing joyfully, worshiping God, not really being concerned about other people thinking what he looks like, that he doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like someone distinguished and dignified. He looks like someone who is absolutely crazy for God. What people outside the church would call a religious fanatic. That's what David looked like. So he maintained this close relationship with God through all kinds of various trauma in his life. But something changed. And before we talk about what changed, let me give you a definition of the way I'm using the word trauma. Trauma is a, I'm not referring to a specific event, but to the state of mind to the season that you or I might be in or that David might be in after a traumatic event. Trauma is a disordered psychic or behavioral state resulting from severe emotional stress or physical injury. Some of us here have been in a car accident and suffered some physical injury. And when you get in the car or you drive in that same spot, uh, there, there is this sense of trauma that comes back. And for some people, that doesn't even go away. It's not just when you're driving in that spot of the road. It's just with you all the time. So David has had a lot of, of stressful events and battles and war, but they haven't created in his life a state of, of trauma or stress. Are you tracking with me? But all that changes. 
And if you've been here uh, for some time, uh, you know what that change was. Uh, That change, David's fall, happens in chapter 11 and verse 1. And it was late one afternoon when his whole life changed. He was walking around out on the deck, and he saw a beautiful woman, and he had her brought to him. And this began uh, a time in his life where he now is in a traumatic state. It wasn't because of an accident or warfare. It was because of his own sin, his own adultery with Bathsheba, and then the cover-up, and then murdering her husband, one of his most faithful soldiers. So his fall all began late one afternoon, and from that point until today's chapter, which we're going to get into in a few moments, David has not been himself. He has not been living like a man after God's own heart. He he has not continued on this trajectory that he was on all the way until 2 Samuel chapter 10. We might ask ourselves, what was core to David's life for those 35 years? What was core to his life that he could be involved in military combat, in all kinds of stressful situations, but yet he was able to live joyfully, without anxiety, without paralysis, without the ability to stop leading. He was able to lead in the midst of all kinds of difficult situations. What was core to him? You could summarize what was core to him during these 35 years of rise, that he had a personal relationship with God that was characterized by prayer, by communion, by individual, not just corporate, but individual, personal prayer with God. There was also corporate worship and corporate prayer. But in David, we see someone who was really close to God. He was also really close to another man who was also really close to God, Jonathan, during much of that, during much of that time period. And, and Jonathan died. That was another stressful event, grief, a traumatic event. But David did not go off the rails with any of these traumatic events. He continues, generally speaking, to to live with a heart of joy and contentment in serving the Lord. But all of that changed late one afternoon. If we think about what his life was like during those 35 years, we could look at a couple verses that kind of summarize it. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David prays this beautiful prayer. And this sentence is from that prayer that he's praying to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And David says to God, your servant, that is David, I, your servant, has found courage to pray this prayer to you. This is what has characterized David's life up until 2 Samuel 11.1. And so this is also something that should characterize our lives. We are all going to have stressful events in our lives, whether we describe them as trauma or not. In the midst of David's traumatic events, losing a friend, military battles, he found courage to pray and to pray specific prayers and ambitious prayers. And we read another summary in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel. The Lord gave David victory 
whenever, wherever he went. Wow. This is not referring only to military victory, but this is referring to what it's like for a man or a woman who is very close to God, that you can live in this place of contentment or victory without fear of anything other than having holy, reverent fear before God, to be, in a sense, untouchable. We, we read the Apostle Paul speak about this. Hey, hey, listen, I, I, Paul says, I'm paraphrasing, I've learned to live with all kinds of riches and comforts, and I've learned to live in prison and in terrible situations. I've learned the secret of contentment that I am close to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an Old Testament way of saying that Yahweh gave David victory wherever he went. Now, after chapter 11 and verse 1, until today's passage that we're about to get into in 2 Samuel 15, David doesn't pray. So I was kind of searching it out this week. You have to go back before 11, chapter 11 and verse 1. David doesn't pray. It's not recorded in Scripture that he's prayed until this chapter. And that is a significant thing for us to notice in this chapter. And with that, let's turn our attention to today's passage, chapter 15, and we're going to pick it up at verse 13. Now, if you haven't been here in recent days, or recent weeks, rather, recent Sundays, we're in the midst of a coup. David's son, Absalom, does not want to wait to inherit the throne. He wants to kick his father out of the throne room, as it were, and ascend and be king now. And this is in process. This coup, Absalom's conspiracy, is in process. So if you weren't here last week, that's what we looked at last week. We're picking that up. Look at verse 13 with me. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. There's been a shift, I'm paraphrasing, there's been a shift from the people looking to you, they are now looking to your son, Absalom, as king. That's what verse 13 is saying. Verse 14, then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring, bring ruin upon us. And put the city, put Jerusalem to the sword. Church, does this sound like someone who is close to God and confident of victory? <laughs> Look at what he says. We must flee. We got to run. We've got to get out of here. This is so uncharacteristic to what during David's era of rise all the way up to 11.1 where he would pray and he would seek God's counsel and God would say, yes, go there, do this, do that. I will give you victory. There is no prayer here and he simply flees. He flees. He is afraid of Absalom and he is not seeking the Lord at this point. William Shakespeare writes, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. David is uneasy, and he is afraid of Jerusalem being ransacked by his own son. You want to talk about a traumatic event. 
to have your son threatening your life and your kingdom. You are the anointed king. These are difficult days for David. We're going to get to some good stuff here in a moment. We, we, we get a crack of David coming back to the other David, but it's going to take a few moments to get there. Let's uh, jump down now. We're going to skip over to verse 23. So David has said, hey, we're fleeing Jerusalem. And we learn, the reader learns in verse 23, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. Now all the people are David and those who are faithful to him. Many of them are people who are foreigners, non-Israelites, who have come to believe in Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Some of them are Philistines, and, and they're from a variety of nations, but they are people that are loyal to him. And they, uh, as they pass by, notice the people of the countryside are weeping aloud. So the reader sees here that David is not without some followers in the nation of Israel. The people in Jerusalem, the people in the population centers, the people, if you will, of the Bay Area in Southern California, they are for Absalom. But the people in the foothills are weeping as David and the people go by. Now, if you are familiar with the New Testament, let me read verse 23 again entirely and see if it reminds you of anyone. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the desert. Does this remind you of any particular king heading to the Kidron Valley? One commentator writes this. He says, Whatever problems certain citizens of Jerusalem and other towns may have had with David, people living in the countryside see him in a different light. Absalom hasn't influenced the people in the countryside. He has concentrated his effort where the majority of the people are, and he has won their hearts, but he hasn't won the people in the countryside. This commentator goes on. He says, he is their king. And as he and his followers pass by, that is, as David and his followers pass by, the people weep aloud as an expression of their fear for an uncertain future. They don't want a future with a deceptive, evil king, Absalom. And then this verse, verse 23, prefiguring the passion of another anointed king centuries later. If you're familiar with the New Testament, there are so many things in this chapter that point to events in the New Testament and that greater king. Look with me on the screen at John chapter 18. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. The same words in English in verse 23, the king crossed the Kidron Valley, the King David. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. We see that this David is pointing to a greater David, who paradoxically is called the son of David. The New Testament Christian reading this passage thinks of the new and greater David. Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. 
It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus wept. There is weeping as all of the people cross, uh, as all of the people are passed by by David and his leaders as he heads toward the Kidron Valley. Let's come back to our text, and I want to uh, continue. Look at verse 24. It says, Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him, who were carrying the ark of the covenant of God. They set down the ark of God, and Abiathar, so these are the two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, offer sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. So here is a crisis, but there is corporate worship happening. This is a good sign. They are offering sacrifices. Verse 25. Verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you. So this is David saying, if God says to me, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. David has a very sober and humble perspective here. He recognizes he may never be in Jerusalem again. That King Absalom may get on the throne and David may die. And David is recognizing his responsibility, his lack of leadership that goes all the way back to 11.1. He has failed to lead. But he wants the ark back in Jerusalem. That's where it belongs. So we see that David has a mature understanding here. He doesn't have a superstitious understanding. He's not thinking, if the ark is with me, then God's going to protect me. No, the ark represents the power of God, but it is not by getting close to the ark that God is with you. It is by getting close to the actual God of the universe that he is with you, not by getting close to his ark. So David has the ark sent back, sent back to Jerusalem. David is taking personal responsibility here, and for the first time, we see a God-centeredness to his life that has been gone since chapter 11, verse 1. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump down now to verse 30. So, verse 30. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too, and were weeping as they went up. So we see humility, we see mourning, we see repentance, and I already pulled the, the verse up, but this reminds us of John 18.1. Um, and this reminds us of Luke 19.41. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. The, the New Testament, the person familiar with the New Testament, the Christian, the, the Christian who lives in the foothills in 2023, who is reading 2 Samuel 15, should identify and see these parallel themes of King David with King Jesus. King David is pointing to King Jesus. And there is a fancy name for this sort of pointing. You want to know the fancy name? Three of you want to know the fancy name. 
The fancy name isn't that important. This may be new to some of you, but it's called a type. David here is a type, T-Y-P-E. A type is a real person, event, or thing that God has ordained to be a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person and work. And by work, we mean the gospel, his death and resurrection. So David here is clearly a type pointing, pointing to the greater David that will come. This David is not sufficient to save the world. This David is not, this David is not sufficient to save the nation. It looks like he's about to lose the nation to a strong, charismatic, good-looking man who has who already established himself with the majority of the people as king. So with that, let's jump ahead again and let's uh, look at verse 31. Or we're not jumping ahead, we're just continuing. Verse 31, now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed. I've got that circled in my Bible. This just screams out. If we think of all of 2 Samuel, David hasn't prayed since before chapter 11 and verse 1. He finally prays. He has been taking responsibility and action. He has send, sent the ark back. And now he is praying. He is putting God at the center of his problem and this dynamic of having two kings over the nation of Israel. And what does he pray? So David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Now this is a bold prayer. This is a bold prayer. Why is that? Because Ahithophel is known as like the wisest guy around. This is the person that you want as your counselor. When there's a room and a meeting, Ahithophel is like the guy who's quiet and everyone is waiting to hear from him. He's the smartest guy. He has wisdom. We want his counsel. So David is praying that the Lord would turn this really wise man's counsel into foolishness. It is a bold prayer. I don't know, you probably know people like Ahithophel. People who are wise. People that you want to seek their counsel. My father-in-law was such a man before he went to be with the Lord uh, to me. Now He wasn't like Ahithophel in other ways. As we're about to see, well, we've already seen. So Ahithophel, if you weren't here the last few weeks, has jumped ship. He was a wise counselor to David, but he has become a wise counselor to Absalom. He is a traitor. He is a betrayer, but he is incredibly wise. And we read of this in 2 Samuel 16. Look at it on the screen with me. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. That's good counsel. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and then as he swapped sides by Absalom. Ahithophel was an incredibly wise counselor. 
Now I'm going to spoil the end of the story here for those of you that don't know this. So spoiler alert here, but you don't have an opportunity to leave the room. I guess you could plug your ears. But I'm going to tell you what becomes of Ahithophel since we are going to be taking a break here and not getting back into 2 Samuel until January. Here's what becomes of Ahithophel, chapter 17. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, so David's prayer is answered in 17, he saddled his donkey and he went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So New Testament readers out there, is there a person in the New Testament who was very close to a king, who was maybe so trusted and close that he was entrusted with the treasury? Someone who swapped sides. Can you think of anyone maybe in the New Testament that fits this description? We have a pointer from David to the greater David, and we have a pointer from Ahithophel to Judas Iscariot. And this is interesting. We have Jamie Wharton with us. I don't want to confuse her with the commentator. I'm about to quote James A. Wharton, okay? James A. Wharton, who I don't know who he is, but he wrote this. He said, Judas, betrayal of Jesus and his subsequent suicide have no remote parallel anywhere in Scripture with the remarkable exception of Ahithophel, who betrayed the Lord's anointed and thus opened the door to suicidal despair. Moving in a positive direction now, if we look at the sweep and scope of the book of 2 Samuel, David is finally praying. He is finally acting. He is finally taking responsibility. He has continued praying over after the self-inflicted traumatic events of 2 Samuel 11 verse 1 and following late one afternoon. And so the common human condition that the Christian living in the foothills in 2023 that we can connect with David about is that after traumatic events, we too need to continue praying. When we are living in a state of trauma, a mental condition of worry and anxiety and fear, it is essential that we get close to God not close to the Ark of the Covenant or not close to the church building or not close to someone who is godly, but we get close primarily to God himself by praying. And this is not what David has done. God's word is speaking to us today about continuing to pray without ceasing, especially after traumatic events, whether those traumatic events our bittersweet providences, like a car accident that is no fault of your own, or whether it is a traumatic event that of your own doing, your own sin, and that is David's situation here. But he has finally taken action and turned to God and prayed boldly. We read in the New Testament to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing. To pray without ceasing. This is the New Testament theme that we can link 
with 2 Samuel, the latter part of 2 Samuel chapter 15. So we could read this and we say, okay, rejoice always. This is a command. How in the world do I, as a Christian in 2023, rejoice always? Well, there's a hint right next to it. The way to rejoice always is to pray without ceasing. To be seeking God and his help and to be filled with his strength and to have his confidence be your confidence. And so when his confidence becomes ours, when our trust is in him, then we can actually rejoice. It doesn't mean we have a smile on our face if we've just gone through some traumatic event, but we know, like Paul, even if we are in prison, that we could sing and rejoice because of this close communion and praying without ceasing. Matthew Henry, again, he writes this, the meaning is not that Christ followers should do nothing but pray, that's not what pray without ceasing means, but that nothing else we do should hinder prayer. Nothing else we do should hinder prayer. What David did in 2 Samuel 11, 1 and following hindered his prayers. It hinders his relationship with God. And he has been living like a leader who is no longer a leader. He hasn't been doing anything. Well, let's come back to our text. We need God's grace to continue praying after trauma. Let's finish up our text, verses 32 through 37. Uh, that, those are the last verses we will look at uh, today in 2 Samuel. So we're jumping to 32. When David arrived at the summit where the people used to worship God, Hushai, Hushai the archite, was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. So David is not only praying... For his advice not to be followed or for it to be turned away. But he is acting in sending a spy into Absalom's camp that will help frustrate Ahithophel's advice. He's praying and he's acting. These things go together. He's not just sitting at home. Not just sitting in, in, in this place he's traveled to, uh, to, to the Kidron Valley, at the top of the mount. He is acting. He is leading. Verse 35. Won't the priest Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimaz, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So David's friend Hushai arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. So he has his spy in place. He's got his couriers there. And David is finally acting courageously after traumatic event. What were his traumatic events? His traumatic events were not the loss of his closest friend. His traumatic events were not the warfare he was involved in. For him, what undid David, what got him off the rails, was his own adultery, murder, conniving. He has not recovered really until here in chapter 15. And he begins to act courageously. After his daughter was raped, David did nothing as a father 
or as the judge, the king. After his son murders, after Absalom murders Amnon, David does nothing, neither as a father nor as the judge of the land, as the king. After Absalom spent four years, we looked at this last week, hanging out outside the city gates when people would come to have their legal disputes settled by the king, Absalom lied to them, said, hey, the king's not available. It'd be really good if I was king because you have a very good case. David did nothing when Absalom did that for four years, turning all the people in Jerusalem, turning their hearts toward him. David did nothing. He finally begins to act courageously after praying in 2 Samuel 15. He doesn't know if he's ever going to be back in Jerusalem. He doesn't know if he's going to remain being king. It looks like Absalom has the the wise counselors and the power and the authority and the population centers. He's got the Bay Area and SoCal. The fact that I've got the foothills is not looking really good. But he has courageously acted after trauma. The mutual human condition that we share with King David of Israel is that God wants you close to him and praying after trauma. He wants you to courageously act, to live for him, to do things after whatever it is, whether it's some bittersweet, bitter providence that has come into your life or whether it's something terrible that you did, you can change. And your, your diagram for your life does not need to look like that. That's what his life diagram looks like beginning at chapter 11.1 until we get to this passage. So God, we need your grace to courageously act after trauma. I want to finish up today looking very briefly at a psalm. One of the things that has been so Um, encouraging to me as I have studied 2 Samuel in preparation for these messages during the week is to see the psalm, that is David's prayer, which was a song in Hebrew that he would pray. His words, he wrote many of the psalms, and you can identify different psalms with different time periods in David's life, including 2 Samuel 15. In Psalm 41, has a verse in it that relates to this passage. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's verse 9. David prays this. He says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The close friend he is referring to here is Ahithophel. He was, amazingly, the father or the grandfather of Bathsheba. He was a wise man. He was a friend who was trusted. He would have normally been a rival, but David somehow won him in and made him, because he was so wise, his his words were like the word of God. He would have had meals with him. He ate my bread. He sat at the king's table. But he has lifted his heel against me, and he has joined in this conspiracy. This is David's prayer in Psalm 41 and verse 9. 
Now this verse, for those who are familiar with the New Testament, also brings up themes there. In fact, it is quoted in the New Testament in John chapter 13. It says, the scripture, that is Psalm 41, 9, will be fulfilled. And then it quotes it. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is referring to Judas. We've already made that connection. Jesus experienced on a much grander scale the kind of betrayal that David experienced with Ahithophel. Jesus, unlike David, was without sin. The chart of his life doesn't look anything like David's chart. David failed massively, beginning in 11.1, and is just now starting to crack the door open to following God and being a man after God's own heart again. But Jesus never failed. He never disobeyed God. And his action, his action was to go to the cross. His action, even though he prayed, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus prayed this in Gethsemane after betrayal, after his disciples scattering, after all of these things happening, Jesus willingly and lovingly acts after betrayal and goes to the cross on your behalf and mine. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the greater David. He experienced betrayal. He experienced suffering. He experienced anguish beyond anything you or I can have ever experienced. And so whatever trauma you have undergone, whether it is a result of your own sin like David or whether it's others who sinned against you, Jesus knows a greater pain and suffering. And he sympathizes with you. And if you are close with him and you seek his face, he will give you courage to move forward in life. This is what David is finally doing in 2 Samuel 15. And this should give us hope that we too, through God's Spirit, can live a beautiful life after traumatic events and bring him glory. Let's bow our heads together and ask God to help us, especially those of us who can relate to living in trauma. Lord, some of us uh, here today might be in a state where we feel like I can't do anything. I can barely keep going. I can't lead. I can't care for others. I am so miserable. That is the condition that David was in. But finally, when his life is threatened by his own son, Absalom, he turns to you finally in prayer. God, help us to be men and women who do not drift away from you after trauma. But Lord, might we be the kind of people who reach out to you more and more and become close to you after trauma. And might we be strengthened that we can move forward and and do good and, um, and experience the joy 
that comes with being close to God. We thank you, God, for your son, who though he was betrayed, who though he suffered, died in our place and rose on the third day. And your word tells us that he is with us until the very end. And we are thankful for that, God. Help us to live in light of that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.